Well, we're continuing our series in the book of Matthew as we think about Jesus, our King and our teacher. And today we're going to be looking at Matthew chapter 10. Now, one of the problems that the church in the West um, in general has been facing, but particularly it's been a problem for us here in the UK, is a loss of the sense of mission, a loss of our call to mission. For the best part of a thousand years in the UK, the church has had cultural acceptability, Christendom, that is the link between church and state. And so throughout that period, people have accepted Christianity largely, at least in a nominal way. And so church going and Christianity has been seen as normal. But as a result of this, there's been a loss of a sense of mission. Because to put it plainly, if people are coming to church and mission means to be sent or to go, then we don't need to go to people. We don't need to be sent to people. The problem is, is that since the 1940s in the UK, Christianity is no longer um, experiencing that cultural norm, that sense of cultural acceptability. It's been in decline and currently the only place in the UK where the church is growing here is, is here in London. And even here it's only just keeping track with population growth. So that causes us to have to face the, the tough question of what about our call to mission? We need to rediscover our call to mission today if we're to see people one for Christ, if we're to see the church strengthened and still having a meaningful witness to this generation. And so it's vital that we recapture our call to mission. And in this passage in chapter 10 of Matthew's gospel, we see Jesus teaching us as the missionary teacher. We're going to see three things, the foundation for mission, the sending out for mission, and then the conditions of mission. First of all, let's think about in verses 1 to 4, the foundation for mission. To get our bearings in Matthew's Gospel, we've been seeing that Matthew's Gospel is all about Jesus being our great King and our teacher. And one of the ways that Matthew structures his Gospel is around these five blocks of teaching. And so Matthew chapter 10 is the second block of the five of teaching. Matthew has certain markers that he uses to make the point that he's ending a section and moving on to another section. So, for example, in Matthew chapter 4, verse 23, we get this. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. That marker comes just before the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' first major block of teaching, where he teaches about the kingdom of heaven, his teaching on the kingdom of heaven. And just before that, Jesus has been showing us that he is indeed God's great king, this new Adam, the one who is going to succeed and defeat temptation where Israel failed. Then we get in chapters 5 to 7, the teaching about the kingdom. And then in chapters 8 and 9, as Mark showed us last week, we get the kind of inbreaking of the kingdom as we see people healed and people drawn to Christ and forgiven. And then we get in Matthew 9 verse 35, another marker point. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. And so this marks again a, a new section as we now come to a gear change where now it's no longer just Jesus who's going out um, on mission for the kingdom of heaven, but now he sends out his disciples for mission. And so notice, first of all, the foundation for mission as Jesus calls his disciples to himself. Verse 10, sorry, chapter 10, verse 1. Jesus called his 12 disciples to him and gave them authority to drive out impure spirits and to heal every disease and sickness 
These are the names of the 12 apostles. This is the foundation for mission. And a few things to really notice here. First of all, notice in these two verses that there is a shift from disciples, as they're named in verse 1, to they're called the 12 apostles in verse 2. These 12 men come to Jesus initially as disciples, but when he commissions them and sends them out, they become the apostles. Apostles is from the Greek word apostolos. It literally means sent ones. So these are the 12 sent ones, sent out for Jesus' mission. Notice as well in the following verses, the use of their names. We're told precisely who they are and, um, and they're all named because these are the specific 12 apostles who are called and set apart by Jesus and given his authority, the authority of the kingdom. Notice therefore also the emphasis on them being 12. We're told that he called his 12 disciples. These are the names of the 12 apostles. Bear in mind that Matthew's gospel is written um, primarily for a Jewish audience in the first century. And so the resonance of the number 12 is the 12 tribes of Israel. This is therefore Matthew and Jesus' way of, of telling us that this is the new Israel. These 12 apostles are the foundations for this new church, this new kingdom, this new community of believers, the new Israel. And finally, notice a few extra details are given as we're told about these 12. We're told Matthew, the person who's writing this, was a tax collector. Um, and Mark told us last week about the great shame associated with being a tax collector. That Simon is a zealot, that's a political revolutionary. And we're told about Judas Iscariot who will go on to betray him. In other words, this is continuing the theme that Jesus has not come to call the healthy to him, but the sick. Because he's not come to look for the righteous, but those who know they're unrighteous and need forgiveness. And this is even true in the choosing of the apostles. He doesn't choose those who are impressive, who have a wonderful religious or moral track record. He calls sinners to himself. And it's these sinners that he commissions as the apostles that get this lofty calling to be the foundation of mission and the foundation of the church in the New Testament. They are eyewitnesses to him and eyewitnesses to his resurrection in the future. This is what qualifies them alongside the call. But there's nothing inherently special about these people until Jesus calls them. So what are the foundations for mission Matthew is showing us here? Well, the foundation for mission is the apostles and the apostolic message. Now, we need to get this because as we go out on mission, what gives us the right to go at all? As we go and speak to people about the gospel, one of the questions that comes up a lot in our culture is, well, how do you know you're right? How do you know that this is true? Isn't it just your opinion, which is different to my opinion? Aren't all opinions equally valid? Well, the authority and the foundation for mission does not lie with us. This is not my opinion over another person's opinion, nor is it just one cultural preference over another cultural worldview or preference. We go with the authority of the apostolic message, the Bible. This is the apostolic witness and it carries the authority of the king. In the ancient world, when a messenger was sent, the messenger would have a, a seal, the royal seal, on um, the message that they sent. And that would make it really clear that it came with the king's authority and therefore to accept the message was to accept the king and to reject the message was to reject the king. In the same way as we go with the apostolic message as the foundation for mission, we go with the authority of Jesus. And remember what we've seen so far in Matthew's gospel, 
That is, that is an authority of blessedness. That is an authority that brings healing and restoration. That is a message that is a message of forgiveness for all people to seek and save the lost, not for the healthy, but for those who are sick. This is the authoritative message that we are sent with. You know, people may say to us that it's irrelevant, but it's eternally relevant because the message comes from the eternal king. People may say that it's just a particularity of one culture, but it's not. It's a universal message, universally applicable to all people because it's the message of the universal king. People may say that it's just your opinion and it has no authority, but it is an authoritative gospel message because it comes with the authority of God's King Jesus Christ. We have been entrusted with this message. This is the foundation for mission. So we must share this with people. The foundation for mission. Let's look next at the sending out for mission in verses 5 to 8. Notice in these verses the emphasis time and again on sending. First, there's the word apostle, which we've already seen means to be sent. Then in verse 5, we are told that Jesus sends out the 12. And then twice in verse 6 and verse 7, we get go. Go to the lost sheep of Israel. As you go, proclaim this message. And it's not just in chapter 10 that we get this emphasis. In Matthew chapter 4, verse 19, Jesus says, Come, follow me, and I will send you out to fish for people. And then in Matthew 28, at the end of the gospel, in verse 19, in the Great Commission, Jesus says, therefore go and make disciples of all nations. So at the beginning of the gospel, Matthew chapter 4, at the end of the gospel, Matthew chapter 28, and in the middle of the gospel, Matthew chapter 10, there is this emphasis on going, on being sent. In other words, for every person who follows Jesus, there's not even a paper gap between being called to follow him and being sent out by him on mission. To be sent out on mission for Jesus is not something that some people in the church who are particularly gifted or particular extroverts and comfortable talking to people do. It's a call for all of God's people, incumbent, a high calling, a mission for all of us to go. And notice who they are to go to. Jesus says, go to the lost sheep of Israel. The lost sheep of Israel here reflects the particularities of this time and place um, because the gospel had to go first to the Jews, then to the Gentile. As Paul says in Romans 1, the gospel is the power of God for the salvation of all people who believe, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. And so here it has to go first to the Jews before it extends from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the ends of the earth, as it says in Acts. But the general here of it going to the lost, the lost sheep of Israel, is true for all times and all places. God's heart is for the lost. He wants his gospel message to go to the lost. Can I ask, is your heart for the lost as well? D.L. Moody was an evangelist um, from America who experienced grapefruit and many people through his ministry coming to Christ. The story is told that when he first came to London after he'd led a number of missions around the UK and there had been considerable fruit with many people turning to Christ, that some of the London clergy wanted to meet him to see what it was about this man that made him so exceptional. So they went to see him in his hotel room and as they asked him, he said to them, could you come to the window and would you look out on the park below and tell me what you see? One by one, the clergy described the scene in the park below and then one of them paused and said, Mr. Moody, can you tell us what you see? 
And at that point, the story goes that tears started to roll down his face. And he said this, I see countless thousands of souls that will one day spend eternity in hell if they do not find the Saviour. This is the heart of the lost. This is what sends us out. This is why Jesus sends us out for mission. And this is what should compel us to go for mission, regardless of our personality type, our dispositions. It's the lostness of the lost. In this great city of London, on any given Sunday, less than 9% of people will go to church. Let's be generous and say that all of those people are Christians. That still means over 90% of the population here in London, millions of people do not know Christ. And because of that, they are facing an eternity separated from him and under his judgment. If that does not move us in our hearts, then nothing will. It is the lostness of the lost that compelled Jesus to come from heaven to earth and to go to the cross. It is the lostness of the lost that should compel us to want to go too. And this couldn't be any more significant you know, one of the great longings for our generation is to have a sense of purpose, not just to survive, but to really live, to know what we're, we're living for. We know that life has got to be about more than just material comforts and living for the weekend, right? The Ladbrokes life, for example. There's got to be more to life than that. We all want a high calling. We all want a sense of mission to give us a direction in life. Well, friends, this is the mission for all of God's people, the mission to go to the lost. And it couldn't be any higher. It is literally about heaven and hell, life and death, people's eternity. There is nothing more dignified to be involved with in this life. It means that every day you wake up and you start praying for this mission. It means that the money you give to this mission, it means that the energies and your labours and your gifts that you devote to this mission could not be devoted to a higher calling. If you want a sense of purpose in life, make this your purpose. As we say here at Inspire, our vision is to be a united and diverse community inspiring London with the good news of Jesus Christ. That is going to the lost. There are millions of people who don't know Christ. Jesus says, let's go. Let's go and seek and save the lost. Now, before we move on to the last point, I just want to pull into a lay-by to pick up something in verse 8 that often causes a fair bit of questioning and a bit of confusion, because one of the elements here in verse 8 is Jesus says, heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons. And this is all in the context of mission, and of course, therefore, it asks or raises the legitimate question as, is this something we ourselves should expect in the context of mission? Or was this something unique to the time of the apostles, for example, or to their ministry? What place for the miraculous, the healing, the raising of the dead, the cleansing of those with leprosy, the driving out the demons for today? Well, look, on one level, whenever you take a passage, you know, for example, um, in the Gospels that is describing something, we always need to be careful not just to prescribe straight from it. If it's describing something that happened, it may or may not be saying that that is something we should do today. You need to look at the rest of scripture to kind of understand that. And at least on one level, this is showing that as we go out with the gospel message, we are to be concerned for people's holistic needs, um, to be concerned for their health, to be concerned for their material circumstances. If we love people enough to share the gospel, we will also love people enough to deal with those needs. There will be a priority on the gospel because of their eternal needs, but we also need to be concerned with their general needs. 
And look, that's something we're involved with here at Inspire with the community aid program that's going on over the autumn and the mutual aid group that was involved with over the beginning parts of lockdown. We go out with the gospel in word and in deed. But what are we to make of the supernatural element here? Some suggest that this is a unique authority that the apostles have to highlight their status as apostles. I think the problem with that is that it's not only the apostles who have these type of... Um, uh, this type of um, healing, um, for example, or supernatural gifts in the New Testament. So in the parallel passage in Luke chapter 10, where Jesus sends out the 72, when they come back in chapter 10, verse 17, they report to him, Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. And so this is just general believers going out, and they also seem to experience the miraculous with them. Similarly, in the book of Acts, the, um, Stephen, who is not an apostle, we're told in Acts 6 verse 8, performed great signs and wonders. So I don't think it's about the miraculous attesting to the apostles. If you read the rest of the New Testament, Acts chapter 1 particularly, it seems the qualifications for being an apostle, that is an authoritative witness to Jesus Christ, the foundation of the church, is to be a witness to his life and resurrection, and also to be specifically called by him. And these 12 apostles are, and then when Judas is replaced, he's replaced by the calling of God with Matthias. And then Paul is also added to that as a witness to the risen Jesus on the road to Damascus, and also as someone authoritatively called. So those are the, the, the attesting to the apostles. But equally, I don't think this means, therefore, that this is not just unique to the apostles, that therefore this means we should always expect this when we go out in mission. Um, you know, to be clear, sometimes the miraculous does happen. And again, we see this in the book of Acts. Take the Apostle Paul. Sometimes he can do the miraculous amazingly, for example, in the island of Malta, where he heals many people. Other times he can't even heal himself from the thorn in the flesh or heal Epaphroditus in Philippians 2. So it's not like a power that you wield and you can just click your fingers and you always can heal. Instead, it's a sovereign work of God and the Lord is always sovereign. He always has the power to heal. He hasn't promised this side of the new creation that he's going to do that. But it does seem that sometimes around particular works of the spirit, at times of particular advancement in mission, the testimony of the global church is that there are signs and wonders and the miraculous that attest to those. And here in Matthew 10, to, if you like, to attest to the inbreaking of the kingdom as the apostles are sent out, we see the miraculous. So it's not necessarily something we should always expect, certainly not something we can click our fingers and command, but in the sovereign work of the Lord, sometimes it will happen. And when that happens, we need to glorify God and continue to proclaim the biblical gospel so that people are saved. Well, so much for a lay-by. We've seen so far the foundations for mission, the apostles and their witness. Then we've seen the sending out for mission, the call to go, because of the lostness of the lost. And as we close, let's look briefly at the conditions of mission, because it's important that as we go, we have right expectations. Thirdly, the conditions for mission, verses nine to 25. Look, first of all, at vulnerability, how vulnerable we are as we go out on mission. Do not get any gold or silver or copper to take with you in your belts, no bag for the journey or extra shirts or sandals or a staff, for the worker is worth his keep, verses 9 to 10. And then in verses 16 to 17, Jesus says, I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. Therefore, be as shrewd as snakes and as innocent as doves. Be on your guard. You will be handed over to the local councils and be flogged in the synagogues. Jesus sends his 
disciples here out in vulnerability. In fact, he deliberately sets up the circumstances for them to be vulnerable. No silver or gold. So they have to rely more tangibly on God's provision. Uh, no bag for the journey or extra shirt because we, it's a vulnerability in mission. And he sends them out as sheep among wolves. That's an incredible image, really. I mean, think of the vulnerability of sheep before a pack of wolves. It's a picture of profound exposure. So vulnerability in mission. And secondly, also division. Jesus clearly teaches here that some will receive the message. As he says in verse 14, they will welcome you and listen to your words. But others will reject the message, as he says in verse 22, will be hated because of me. Now, we've really got to reckon with these two realities. First of all, the vulnerability in mission, and secondly, the division when we go out of mission. Because I think we, we tend to think that when we go out of mission, there's a way of doing it, if we get it right, where we'll feel secure and where people will accept us. And that is the complete opposite of what we're seeing here. You know, we will not feel secure in mission because to go in mission is is actually Jesus wants us to feel vulnerable so that we rely more readily on him, so that it's obvious that the power comes from him and not from us. And as we go, there will be division. We think, if I just explain the message in the right way, or if I'm just winsome enough, or, or kind enough, or compassionate enough, then those who reject the message will kind of be, thanks so much for a lovely explanation of the gospel. You seem like a lovely guy, but it's not quite for me and that those who accept it will just be joyful. In other words, there's no cost. But that's not what Jesus says. He's very clear. It'll be like being amongst sheep, amongst wolves. You'll be dragged before governors and authorities. You will be persecuted. In the UK, there will be reputational cost for you if you share the gospel. But there's no way of sharing the gospel and diminishing that risk. There could be relational cost to you, no matter how kind you are, how compassionate you are, because Jesus was the most kind, most compassionate, wisest evangelist there's ever been. And what happened to him? He was crucified for it. And no servant is above his master. So the only way that we will have people come to receive Jesus Christ is if we ourselves are ready to be prepared to be rejected for Jesus Christ. And the only way that we will see people come to have eternal security in Jesus Christ is if we are prepared to give up our security and be vulnerable as we go. You say, well, how can I possibly go if that's the condition for mission? It just feels too difficult, too exposing. Oh, my friend, you can go because as you go, you don't go on your own. You go with Jesus going with you. He was the one who was willing to not only protect his sheep, but to lay down his life for the sheep, to chase away the wolves. He died so that you might be secure. He was torn apart on the cross, so that when the insults come that seem to tear you apart, you can trust in him that he's got you, that he's with you, that he's keeping you. He was ultimately crucified and put to death so that you might have life and know that as you go, that he will always keep you, that he will never leave you, nor forsake you. You know, it seems to me that we need these two conditions as we go in mission. That is, we need to both feel a profound sense of the vulnerability, the fear factor as we go in mission, but also a profound sense of our calling and the authority to go in mission. If we just have one without the other, it never works. For example, if we just have a profound sense of the calling and the confidence to go in mission, it will always come across 
like my opinion over your opinion, I'm right, you're wrong, cultural imperialism, my culture's got it right, your culture's got it wrong. And if you look at the history of the church, when that's been the case, it's done much damage in Christ's name. But equally, if we just go in vulnerability and weakness, but no sense of calling and the authority of Jesus, then when people push back, we'll say, you're right, it's, it's just my opinion, what am I to know? And we'll give up. But if we go with confidence in the authoritative call of Jesus to send us out on mission, to, send, to be sent out with him as the king, compelling us to go, and this vulnerability, then there's a humble confidence about us that is just different and so attractive. You know, people won't be able to pass it off as cultural imperialism. They'll say that she doesn't think she's better or that she's got it right. She just seems to be deeply convinced that this is the truth. And there's something compelling about that. Some will reject, but many will find it attractive. You know, as we go, it causes us to rely more tangibly on God. And when we rely on him and we pray, we are never stronger than when we feel vulnerable. My friends, many of you will say, look, I'm no great evangelist. I, I don't even know what to say. Can I say to you, since when has your gifting been the precondition for Jesus' work through you? Jesus works through those who are weak. Go, speak, speak up, invite to the, um, to the service. Share the gospel. Learn what the gospel is if you don't know what it is so you can share it. Ask someone, do you want to read the Bible with me? You know, it's been amazing. Under this time of lockdown, we've probably seen more fruit in the life of Inspire that we've ever seen at any other period since the church was planted and since we joined with St. James. Why is that? Because we're vulnerable and we're weak and the Lord is working through us. As the words of the hymn say, and let me end with this, we go in faith, our own great weakness feeling and needing more each day thy grace to know, yet from our hearts a song of triumph pealing, we rest on thee and in thy name we go. We rest in Christ, we rely on him, so let's go. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this call to mission. Give us confidence in it. And thank you so much in your sending out for us as we go out with the message of the apostles, the apostolic message that is from the king to take to people who are lost. But also we, we recognise we've got a weakness and vulnerability. Lord, please work through us, we pray, in this vulnerability to draw many people to yourself. We ask it for Jesus' glory and for his name's sake. Amen.